0: Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman.
1: So, this evening, I'm sat with James Pellett, Director of Workplace and Innovation for Great Portland Estates. James has his fingerprints on several of London's best offices as a career in project management that spanned project manager and head of projects for Great Portland Estates, Tishman Speyer, Moore London, and EC Harris. So, before we get going, James, I asked you to reflect a little bit on your career in chapters. Why don't you kick us off? What was the earliest chapter?
0: Um, my earliest chapter, uh, was, I was, I was really fortunate to do, uh, a year out at university. So I, I spent a year on site with, um, building design partnership, building the Bental Center in Kingston, which was fascinating. Look at a multidisciplinary firm. And at, at that point, I thought I wanted to be an architect, but I, it was decided when I applied for architecture school that I'd had, um, insufficient artistic merit. Uh, so I failed on the architecture front and studied building surveying instead. So the first real chapter, I guess, in my career was working at Watson Partners and um, as a building surveyor. And uh, it was a great firm. I was quite lucky to get into Watts, Really, I suppose it was the first point of persistence and lesson in life, if you like, in terms of it was 1993 and there was depths of recession and uh, there was wasn't much hope of getting jobs and i kept getting rejection letters from people like knight frank and jones lang wootton as they were then and um but there was one i got a response from watson partners that gave me a bit of encouragement and they said that they'd lost my cv they wrote to me and said we know your cv was in for interest but we lost your cv and then i got a letter the next day rejecting me so i went into a phone box uh, university and um, indignant with rage, and phoned up Ted Watts and complained uh, to say, "How could I be rejected if he didn't have my CV? That's just unfair." And of course, he didn't have a clue who I was or what I'd done. But but actually, that sort of that act of uh, directness, I suppose, is what got my foot in the door. It got me an interview, and um, yeah, I I got part of the graduate entry, and I was it was my foot in the door, which I was really pleased about well i think
1: i think it's kind of always sort of reflect on that can't we said so it's the littlest of things and when, it, when it's sort of graduate intake it's going to set you apart and i imagine that yeah. sort of gumption is, uh, uh, was, was just that yeah so you mentioned then about sort of, the disappointment about sort of architecture and then you, you've been successful in getting yourself started in uh, in a career in building surveying at that very earliest at sort a of, time do you remember what what was driving you what you were particularly looking for
0: I knew I wanted to work in the built environment. I've always been really fortunate that I've never had any sort of major career doubts about what I wanted to do. I always knew that I wanted to be in it. It was just a question of where in the universe I was. And at that time, my focus, I think, was getting chartered. I wanted to become professionally qualified. And whether that was the RIBA or the RSCS, I was just going to keep going until I got one of them. And uh, so it happened to be the RSCS, and that was it, a chartered surveyor.
1: Uh, it's amazing, isn't it, the power of those sort of letters to get people sort of focused for the the first two or three years of their of their career, and um, mm. that sort of be or end or Given what time we're recording this as well with sort of exam results, um, yeah, uh, there's no doubt the similarities. Yeah,
0: indeed, indeed, and uh, and I failed it at the first attempt as well, actually. So again, it was a point of persistence, uh, keep of keeping going, of not accepting the. Uh, rejection but just trying to keep soldiering on and wanting to do
1: it so that spell was um what's after what it, sort of two or three years came to an end and you you joined ec harris and um, i did but was that as a, was that your first spell as, as a project manager out and out project manager
0: no so i was really fortunate at watts that uh ted watts did take me under his wing and they didn't really offer project management as a service but we got uh, an instruction to project manager in the animal hospital which was fascinating it was really interesting uh thing to do and i i just wanted to pursue my career really in terms of project management at that point i realized that building surveying i mean it's a great job but for me you, you sort of find the failure in things but you never have the opportunity to put them right and i'm much more optimistic than that really i don't really enjoy the negativity of things so for me, project management was the next leap, and EC Harris was that opportunity for me to be able to develop and learn those project management skills.
1: And to many now, well, certainly to people who, who are entering the industry now, they won't be very familiar with the, the name of EC Harris, will they? They're much more familiar with what, what it's become. No,
0: Arcadis, that's
1: it. How big a practice was it back then?
0: It was still pretty big. It was, it was UK-wide uh, at that time. It didn't have any international offices. I remember writing to Richard Clare and setting out this business plan that they should merge with actually at that time with an agency firm, because it was the only way that they, if they were truly going to give advice through the life cycle, uh, then they they needed to grow and expand. And clearly he didn't take my advice (laughs) and waited a few years, which is fair enough. But I guess, again, there's that point of not wanting to hold back those ideas or having that, that, that look ahead and that visioning and I guess not feeling, never feeling constrained that I shouldn't put my hand up and put and give people above me advice, which sounds arrogant, but I guess it's just, I've always thought bigger picture really and just thought, There's a different future and and i've always been interested in it
1: well i was going to ask you about what you know what was been sort of the the biggest lessons so what about the obstacles you face when trying to do that when this young sort of chartered building surveyor does pipe up in this in this larger practice you know what yeah how would you
0: face that it didn't really occur to me really i think it's just i've always been interested in what's going on and I, i never feel constrained by it there's just ways of having conversations and just meeting people and talking to them and generally i think if you've got an opinion and you're willing to listen and you can frame a conversation in the right way then that employer should recognize it and if they don't then frankly you should move on i've never worked somewhere where someone's sort of said me on the head and patronized me and said oh, no we don't want your idea and if they did i'd, I'd be i'd have left i've gone <laughs> so um yeah i don't think it's uh, it's never really been a problem for me or an issue for me.
1: Okay, as now as a project manager with EC Harris, do you remember what, one of the defining moments of that sort of earlier career? Do you remember one of the particular projects? Or
0: oh yeah, I mean, I was yeah, I was so far out of my depth. I thought that I had to jump in with both feet and prove that I was capable of doing something. And it was a project called Northcliffe House, which was an office building that's about to be vacated actually, but it was a speculative scheme, but it was next to Freshfields, the law firm, and it was kind of obvious they would lease it and take it. So I ran that job. It was a 160,000 square feet, and um, I was so far out of my depth, I mean, the stress that caused me, uh, and anxiety, it was just, you know, you work hard at it, and you feel like you've got to achieve it. And I, I really wanted to see a project from beginning to end, and I'm so glad that I did, because I could have left. I could have made other excuses. It was, it went badly wrong. It was late. It had all sorts of issues. But everything I learned from that project, I have applied to my career ever since, even to this day. And it taught me a lot about how teams work, about people's motivation, about how you can keep going, dealing with conflicts, and just persistence really in keeping going. And at the time, I wasn't glad I did it, but. Looking back on it, I'm so glad I did it and I'm so glad that I had that experience to, to see it through.
1: And so we're coming to the culmination of your career with DC Harris. After sort of five or five or six years, you get promoted to partner, don't you? Yeah. How long does that last?
0: One day. <laughs> <laughs> One day. You know, I've, I guess I've always stri- strived to be in a position of influence and I like... To, to feel like I'm in an organization and know what's going on. And I worked really hard to become partner. But I also kind of knew at the same time that the real position of influence in a in the world of property came from being on the client side. And I was really, really trying hard to get to work for a client. So I was pursuing that other avenue. And as part of my employment at EC uh, Harris, I. Uh, I did some work for More London or CIT and More London at the time. And um, so I I got to know Tony Wall very well and was pursuing conversations with him at the same time. And so Richard Clare kindly offered me a partnership. So me persisting him for for all these ideas of business expansion. And I remember him saying to me, he said, no one's ever turned this down. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, well, (laughs) I might be the first. (laughs) Um, The club you never want to leave yeah club you never wants to leave and and yeah I, I did so i was that you know football fans would have booed me off the pitch but maybe i did the wrong thing but i for me i, I didn't feel like i could I, I didn't want to count my chickens and i didn't have the offer from more london but as soon as i got it then i knew what i had to do and uh and moved on
1: okay and so this feels like the start of, the next, of another big chapter here. You mentioned there of the wish and the ambition to get the influence to be on the client side. You granted your wish. How does reality stack up?
0: It, it, was, it was fascinating, really. And, uh, and I'm grateful to Tony to this day. And because I think a lot of people can feel, especially I think in the, in the construction industry as well, people, as once you've got a client role, Somehow life becomes easier because, you know, people do what you say. And it's sort of true to an extent, but I think too many people let the power go to the head. And I think it really took me a year to realize that I was playing with live ammunition. You know, the the consequence of saying something meant that everything changed direction in a different way. And you've you've got to be really wary of that that influence and that power and not to not to abuse it really or or not to use it in the wrong direction so it was a great learning period it was a really exciting time and a great project and a great team really great team really look back on it fondly um
1: i think you can tell that you can you can tell by the 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 affection in your in your voice where we sort of describe that team so to help me out what was it that was really working well
0: I think that, I think it's, again, the same thing. What really, what was great about it was that a lot of the More London team had been, uh, had previously worked at Stanhope. So there was a big focus on construction management. There was a big focus on working as a team with designers, engineers, trade contractors, management contractors. And it was that, really that, that realization that you weren't necessarily in conflict with each other, but you were there to try and get the best result for the project and to not hide behind mistakes and not hide behind issues, but at the same time try and sort of work through personalities and try and learn things and try and evolve things and uh, yeah it was a it was a you know working with so working with Fosters working with arab some great people people who are friends to this day and i think it was really the collective power of what a team can achieve and um and i also think the power of what i've enjoyed the team at more london were it was it was just a, it was only 13 of us so it's great that it was a small team i like i prefer working for smaller organizations rather than larger ones and i've got a theory on that which maybe i'll come back to later but it was working for Liam and Tony they they were both challenging in their own ways and Liam especially you know would just keep asking you questions and I, I can remember going into his office and thinking right I've got to he's going to ask me five questions and I've, I've got to think of those five answers what are the questions and then he'd get to the sixth one and I was like damn it he's always asked me a question I never realized but it was only talking to him afterwards and since I left that he just said, well, yeah, that's all I did. I keep asking questions until like, you don't know the answer to one. It's with you. It just took more time. <laughs> so it was kind of that preparation and, and, and just the fun, and knowing that work can be fun and, and knowing that you can enjoy it as well as overcome the adversity to get stuff done too. It was, it was brilliant. Yeah, really good time.
1: So that's everything that's going really well. The career is now in history, and we know then that, that did come to an end. What brought it to an end?
0: What brought it to an end was the constraint, really, of, of there wasn't something else to go on to. It was, it was constrained by its boundary. It was 13 acres once the site had been developed. I guess, you know, I kind of regret, with hindsight, being a bit cockier, that I think we should have stayed together and looked for other sites and looked for other developments and, and tried to keep on going. Um, and I think we'd have done a great job at doing it. I mean, I think we should have developed Battersea or something like that. You know, we'd have really ha- been able to handle it, but you know, we didn't. And there was—it was just the uh, the way the organisation was set up that there was no way to sort of expand to other sites in London. And I couldn't see a future, sadly. And um, so I just felt constrained. And, and whenever I sort of feel constrained by something, I always sort of pursue another change. I always try and have target for three to five years ahead of me i'm always challenged in a constructive way by my wife who always supports me and is happy for me to be a postman which i've also been back in my way in the distant past but as long as i'm happy doing what i'm doing and so long as i've got a plan and i think it's that challenge of of striving forwards but and always having something to look at and, and the curiosity about what's next and i'm sadly at more london There just wasn't something else. It was, there was one more plot to do, I think. And um, there wasn't a path beyond it, sadly. Okay.
1: So what does come up
0: next? So what comes up next is a really interesting uh, difference and a really different challenge, uh, which was working for Tishman Spire. Since I was a young boy, I've always been impressed. I've always sort of looked to America as the sort of a land of, Optimism and opportunity and growth and can do spirit and I'd worked with quite a few Americans at more London coincidentally and I was approached by a headhunter to go and work for them in london and they the there was a sage piece of advice and said knowing you as as I do and knowing them as an organization I think you you do you'd have a great time there so I did I joined as director of design and construction and I was it was a very different change because looking from one focus from one site to looking across Europe and at times across the world, it was a, it was a very different lens. So it was a, a, a different period of learning.
1: So let's just for the to benefit the audience, how old are you when you make that
0: move? So I was, uh, so this was 2006, so I was 36. Yeah.
1: Big gig, isn't it? For what seems to remarkably quite young. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how fair a question this, this is. What do you think sort of made them choose you?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't say. But I think it was a combination of the things I'd learned at More London in terms of what actually makes a project work. What, finding out where the problems lie and trying to solve them and trying to work out. There's a process that you follow, and maybe there's a contract that follows a different route, but actually understanding that if you're cutting corners you're cheating or it's going to bite you in the end and i think i could convey that at the interview so i and you know the, i'm always fortunate that given the experience i had at ec harris and where things have gone wrong and the things i feel passionately about are the things that are always about improvement and trying to strive to move forwards to To look at things and if someone was asking me to cut a corner i i will refuse to cut that corner and i think it was that really as much as anything else plus my massive overconfidence that still existed (laughs) 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 um thinking that yeah i can, i could i'll go and change the world and i'll go and do that that's that's for sure
1: Well, in my my prep for this, I have spoke to a couple of your former colleagues, one of which sort of knew you in your Tishman's days. What they said was what struck them was that you had more curiosity and more stamina to see a project finished than any other project manager they'd worked with. Now, that sounds really simple, doesn't it? To ask questions and to see something through to the end. But from your experience, what do many PMs overlook?
0: They overlook the team. And they overlook, and it took me, actually, it took me quite, I didn't know this at the time but I do know it now. I guess I circumvented it at at more London, but the blame culture that exists and allowing people to blame and lots of clients, people in that authority rule by fear because they think they can, but it actually doesn't achieve anything. And if you blame people, which is what this industry is made up of, people become very defensive. They don't want to collaborate. They protect themselves. And it's becomes very introverted, very inward looking. And that's, that's the stress and strain that it causes. So the curiosity is only there because I wanted to, I mean, I would sit in meetings and I, I've, I have a fairly, I'm not a very detailed person. So there's a definite weakness on my part, but I suppose it's because I'm looking at a big picture and looking at what the big problem is. And I generally feel that if you solve the big problems, the smaller ones tend to take care of themselves uh but you've always got to be looking over the horizon what those things are and that curiosity is always what's what's going to come what what happens next why are we doing this what are we doing this for how do i how do i hand this building over to somebody else and what do they do with it once i've handed it over rather than just thinking right i'm going to finish on this date and everyone will think i'm a hero and i suppose it's the most people in project management forget that they're just a very small part of the process the, the life cycle of what you're doing and the buildings that you make are going to have far out, and in many cases, outlive their careers. You know, it should do. And people don't really, it sounds a bit passe, but from the world of property, it's a process that you go through. It's a risk, but they don't really care how you do it. They just want you to get it done. And really, if you're going to really add value, it is to understand the consequences of what you're doing when you're making it and the effect it has on the outcome over its life cycle, which is much more of a value-added uh, proposition.
1: You mentioned about the blame culture, and you've succeeded in this industry. So if I'm talking about the, you know, the, the tools that you've had to hone, does that mean you've, you've had to develop quite a thick skin?
0: I wish I had a thicker skin, if I'm honest. I, I, I wear my heart on my sleeve, and, and I take things way too Personally, I'm, I'm way too sensitive for the criticism and stuff, um, and it's, and that's helped me back too at times. And it's and it's affected my own mental health as well. It's made you know it's led me to depression at times. It's really miserable. But I've learned to cope with that, learn to deal with it, and learn to look for the things and and deal with the conflicts and deal with them. I think having that sort of not taking things so personally, maybe that I'd feel that I'd uh, I'd be a bit more resilient maybe but
1: it's double-edged sword isn't
0: it if i didn't take them so personally then i wouldn't be so passionate about them and wouldn't want them to change or get better so i think it's yeah it's just the way it is that's what you do i can smile about it now but at times it's been pretty miserable
1: there's an aspect of the tishman's um role in that chapter that i wanted to ask you about this is your first leadership gig isn't it this is the first the first time you you've been running that team internally do you remember what lessons you'd, you'd learned from previous managers and, and what, what you were being able to sort of implement that had been a success at Tishmans?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I was lucky to work for some amazing people at Tishmans. And throughout my career, there's the sort of global head of design and construction, a guy called Tom Farrell, who was one of the most you know, inspirational people that I've worked for. He saw the value in the team and the ethic and positivity and just getting things done. And uh, I was very lucky. When i joined gpe that tom carried on to be my mentor so I sort of, you know i spoke to him last month and um yeah i have nothing but respect to learn from those people and to to i suppose it's that part of leaving on good terms and sticking with people and you know, i'm not sure if i've answered your question but there are there's you learn the qualities of, about good leadership from different people and i mean it all sounds when we come on to talk about gpe talking about toby that's a another layer completely but um good leaders i think show that calmness and i guess the difference is that in the early part of my career that if a leader showed emotional intelligence it was considered a weakness and i think if there's a sort of positivity in the last four or five years is that that's now seen as a strength and uh i'm hoping that Celebration of diversity and diversity of thinking and ways and attitudes of getting things done is to be supported and celebrated.
1: OK, so you're coming up now to five years with Tishman's. We've talked about you know what you've, what you've learned so far and you've been able to develop new skills and, and learn from the likes of, sort of Tom Farrell. But I am curious about sort of how, how that role has developed over that time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you've got got to have the backdrop of the banking crisis. So Lehman's had happened, and Tishman had borrowed quite heavily, not so much in Europe, but certainly in the rest of the US. So that was sort of looking at their own global ambitions, uh, I think, in a different light. And the role had grown. I mean, I spent a lot of time, especially in Europe, and later in the part in the US, translating construction and uh, it was great learning from different people in Europe about different things, but it was kind of, there was always this sort of going, you, you Brits are crazy. Why do you do that that way? That's ridiculous. I was thinking, well, hold on. It's not that bad. <laughs> we get stuff done. And, and it was more, so I was, I was lucky enough towards the end of my career to work on the Bloomberg project, uh, and it was setting that up and running an international design competition. And I was always, as I said, I always looked at America as, as the sort of accelerator for the careers. And, and in my 20s, I tried to work with uh, GMT and and tried to go work in New Yorker because I felt like it would really accelerate my experience. And what I came to realize was that actually the balance between speed and complexity uh, and the speed at which um, basically americans can build things for different reasons was mired by the complexity of london so london is a city of you know medieval street patterns it's not a grid like manhattan it means we have quirky shaped buildings we have problems like rights of light we don't have as of built as of right developments we spend more on cladding than we do in europe because of weather conditions but also the amount of travels but also from planners and there was a way of getting planning permission. So understanding all of that complexity, I think makes work in London really interesting, and um, sadly, towards the end of that that point that Tishman didn't get chosen to be the development partner for bloomberg uh, and it was I'd spent a year or so traveling across the Atlantic, which was which sounds exciting at the beginning and was but becomes tiring and just not as much fun and um I felt like I'd sort of. Got to where I got to. Again, I felt constrained, and that's when the opportunity to join GPE came up.
1: I just want to ask you a question there, because you know we talked about curiosity, we've talked about learning up until this point, haven't we?
0: Yeah.
1: How how have you managed to to recognise when you've stopped learning?
0: When I start to get a bit bored, uh, I think is the truth. I start to get distracted, or I start to get a bit miserable, really.
1: Complacent?
0: No, never complacent never ever complacent, but just not as not getting out of bed with the same zip. Or just it just gets me down. It just it can really play with my mood and sort of wears down over time. And, and someone came up with a brilliant analogy about stress and, and uh depression. It's like holding out a glass with your hand at a right angle. And your, your arm slowly goes down but you don't notice your arm going down and that's the pressure that you're under and it's that sort of, you don't always appreciate it at the time but you just become more grumpy and a bit more miserable and you find ways to deal with stuff and life isn't always, you can't always like lace daisies through people's hair and all that sort of stuff but it's it's, I don't know, you just feel it getting you down, bogging you down and someone once asked me, said how do you keep going, how do you keep Especially through a life cycle of a project, and there's always little milestones and little things you can celebrate, but when that's the sort of relentless nature of it all it just becomes it just becomes where's my soul if you like uh and I just become a bit grumpy and a bit miserable and look for the next thing, and I'm always curious about the next thing and always looking around the corner of what's next and what's happening okay well
1: that's that's a that's a great little segue then to talk about sort of what you know what's coming round the corner um. So this is the start then of the, of the Great Portland Estates chapter. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you tell the, tell the story of how you and Neil got involved.
0: So yeah, I think it was, I mean, it was, again, it's still another lesson for young people really. And anyone listening to this is that point, the value of networking and always staying interested in the industry and what's going on. And I was a member of the, BCU and volunteered to become a judge and Neil was the chairman of judges. So we were, for one year, whilst I was still at Tishman, uh, we spent a week touring London, looking at buildings and got to know each other. And it's just those, those things, I guess, that I didn't, I didn't think of it as a career opportunity. GPE at the time had just raised a lot of money and was definitely looking at as coming out of recession as a opportunity. And the opportunity came along. They had had a vacancy and um, we spoke about it and it just seemed the right fit. I mean, all of those things that, as I said, I was sort of tired of travel, always been in love with London and working for a London-focused business just seemed a great opportunity. And uh, running that portfolio of projects and looking at things and a great team and a great philosophy and a great business, all of those things attracted me. And I think it's that I sort of mentioned it earlier. There's an anthropologist called Adrian Dunbar, and he has a theory, Dunbar's theory, that the human brain can cope and remember with about 150 to 200 people. And beyond that, it all gets a bit fuzzy. And that includes your friends and family too. So if you think about it, sort of the organisation, your colleagues, that only leaves about sort of 80 to 90 people who you're at work with. And what I realized that it's not a, to the detriment of Tishman Spire or to EC Harris, but working for those large international organizations just isn't as, wasn't as much fun for me. And because I kind of like to know who's running things and meeting Toby and Neil at the time and the philosophy that GPE have, it wasn't that, it actually, wasn't that dissimilar to Tishman. It was, it was, Collegiate way of working, working as a team, doing the right thing, never cutting corners, having integrity about what you do. And as I've come to learn, a really simple business plan. You know, we have a very simple business plan, but we do really complicated work. None of it's easy. It's always a challenge. And it was just a great opportunity and one of, I'm really pleased I took.
1: Let me ask you a quick question then. You spoke about the earliest parts of your career having the courage to ask questions and to have the curiosity, but not just curiosity, but to actually sort of to, to verbalize those questions to uh, to your seniors. Have you kept that throughout the career, or had had? Some yeah, of- I mean that's
0: that's that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. That ability to keep questioning and asking and suggesting is why I'm doing my job. That's why I change roles and because of those conversations I have with Toby, and. You know, through his support and recognising it is why I'm doing it. So it's never stopped. It's never gone away. Um, okay. and, and now, I actually, I'm encouraged to do it. I'm sort of paid to do it, if you like.
1: It's gone full circle.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: <laughs> okay. So let me ask a quick question about about sort of GPE then. Because, again, as part of my research, one of the guys I spoke to was, um, who'd worked with you back in the more London days, He says that he gives you the most credit for boosting the reputation of GPE as a leader in the construction sector. Do you recognise that as one of your achievements?
0: Uh, Gosh, I'm blushing almost. That's really kind of him to say that. I don't know. I don't think that's... Maybe it's true. I don't know. That's for others, I guess, to say outside of the industry. But I I guess the challenge was that up until I joined, uh, just because of the, the original size of the business at that time, we weren't as comfortable working with larger developments. And perhaps because of the work that I was doing with with More London and the pipeline of work that GPE had, it meant that we were working on bigger projects. So perhaps they just got more attention. Um, But equally, the opportunity to do the right thing and to be backed up by the senior management team to do that right thing, and having a brilliant and inheriting a brilliant team of people Helen Hare, martin Quinn and Mash. Uh, was a really you know it was serendipity, if you like, but I guess you create your own luck. it was the stars all fell into to alignment, and um, yeah, and, and suddenly I had this this toy box to play with, and all of these great projects and and the ability to work on a portfolio of different projects, from really small little things to really big things, uh, but doing it all with the same philosophy, I guess got more attention. But it was only really putting into place those things i would learned along the way uh, in my career.
1: Okay. So you joined then Great Portland States. You've got the title as Head of Projects, but as you alluded to, you inherited an established team, didn't you? Yeah. What had you learned either up until this point in the career or what did you need to learn pretty quickly to manage?
0: Yeah. So uh, the, the, I guess the key thing was to learn, was to trust that team and not to micromanage them and not to cut them off at the ankles or wait for them to build that trust. Uh, again, it was some advice that Tom gave me of saying that, you know, people are really capable, and they will get stuff done. And provided you can trust the team to deliver on those things, the bulk of what I have to do is to give them the freedom to do it to protect them to do it, and to allow them to grow and um, give them the credit for doing it too. don't take that credit away from them. And I was Really lucky to have such a talented team of dedicated professionals who've got opposite skills to me, frankly. You know, they, are, uh, they were definitely better project managers than I was. And, may, and maybe it's just that view of looking over a wider team of things was my skill and looking at many different plates at any one time. But they, you know, they're far more detailed and thorough, but I could trust them to do it. And one of the great lessons in terms of innovation was, was came out at the same time, and I still use it to this day. So this was 2011, and the government mandate for BIM had just come out uh, with Paul Morell, And I'd done some digital design at More London, and, I'd, and Tishman had started to do some really early stages of BIM at Yankee Stadium, and I'd sort of learned about that there. And it sort of, and I realized the sort of, one of the biggest faults of UK construction industry really was that design teams don't fully design buildings anymore and we always rely on the subcontractor to design them and, but we're always essentially at conflict because there's a there's a contract in place that passes that risk albeit in name only really over to the contractor but here we are in 2011 I've got this mandate to use BIM and I think right I'm definitely we're going to employ this this is, this is the easiest thing to this is as easy as falling off a log so I guess falling against my instincts, I sort of said to the team, so we're going to use BIM on this project. And they all looked at me, we're, really? Why? I said, "Just we're just going to get it done. And, and what I learned the most valuable lesson was actually thinking, you no, know, I've got to sort of listen to what Martin's telling me. And when you realize that sort of the people that have got, why are they scared to try new things? Why are they scared to develop new things? And it's often to do with fear and failure and, and getting in the way of the task. And they're all valid reasons sometimes. But when, you, when your biggest sort of doubter becomes your biggest supporter, that, that, is, that is the best you can get to. And so with Martin, I, we worked together and I listened to what he had to say. And at 240 Blackfriars, which was the scheme we built at the time, and I passed it today, actually. I mean, again, with Mace at the time, it was just a way of giving transparency to the issue and the issue being that, you know, no building is ever designed fully before you commit to it. But if you can identify where issues are, then you can work together to try and solve them irrespective of where the contract is. And that's what we did. And it was amazing. And Martin became a really great advocate and supporter for it. And from there we developed, uh, nine buildings, uh, using BIM across that, that process. And some people look at me and go, yeah, okay, so what? But I, I'm still really proud of it because the, it was the philosophy of doing that that really set, again, set me on the roll of what I'm doing today. And the outcome of that has meant that we've been able to innovate and pull things together. Uh, so I think we, we have one of the most innovative portfolios of almost anyone, really, because we, we can look at technology and, and know how to apply it and get around the issues despite the industry but that's coming from that's directly coming from listening to martin so listen to the sort of people who've got doubts and fears that they're, they're valid and then if they're i mean martin isn't like this at all but if they're being obstructive for the sake of it then it doesn't work and, it's, and the same with helen at rathbone you know that that point, and with with and building that in you know all of these other schemes that developed around london at the same time were 18 months late. At Rathbone, we were just a few weeks late in the end, which is remarkable given its complexity. But we learned, and, and again, Helen's attention to detail and leadership is you know, second to none. It was just that great synergy between an idea and detail and working through things to get them done. And I'm immensely proud of that, that delivery at Rathbone, that everybody came together, from the architect and the team, and suppliers, everyone again. And it's all working out, you know, that, that was really, really powerful for me and really exciting, and I'm really proud of it.
1: So I'm going to sound like I'm repeating myself now. Again, you can, you can tell you've got that, that passion for what you've been doing, the team you're working with, you know, it's certainly the projects are remaining to be exciting, aren't they? So why, in 2018, did you give all that up? Yeah. <laughs> why? Why did you give up the comfort? <laughs> exactly. Of, you know, you had this wonderful sort of title – in, yeah, so industry recognition, yeah. you talk about a plan. You know, the next sort of three or four years of that plan surely must have been pretty safe and secure. Why did you give up that title of Head of Projects?
0: There's two things. There's a positive answer and there's a negative answer. And the negative one was, I guess, the constraint thing, that theme of constraint. Uh, and it's not constraint of ambition for GPE because we've gone on to develop as exciting a pipeline of buildings since then. It was the constraint of the industry really. And I realized at that time that part of the reason for the delay at Rathbone was because we'd lost labor to other sites and we did everything we could to treat labor fairly, pay them well, motivate them, use technology to help make life easier, uh, all those sorts of things. But when you realize that other clients manage projects inefficiently, they keep repeating the same mistakes that everybody keeps on making. And it ends up being the who shouts the loudest tends to call labor away. I just felt that I wasn't going to do, I wasn't going to be able to really change the industry for the better. And it was really kind of my former colleague to say that, but you know, there's, there's, there's a, there's, a, there's kind of a limit to it because we are quite small in what we do, but that's our focus in London. And that's, great from our perspective so I don't regret that but at the same time the world's evolving so the positive answer is that you could see the effect of all this technology is having and I said I mentioned earlier the impact of, of our buildings on the life cycle so one of the great things about GPU is that my my colleagues we do everything in-house so we do the management we do the buying the selling the development leasing we have in-house expertise for everybody to do it. And so listening to my colleagues in sustainability, in leasing, uh, and investment everywhere, you know, you can learn the whole life cycle of a property from our business. And then you sort of therefore realize the consequences of what you're doing. So at this time, technology is really shifting how people operate assets, how our assets are operated. So the whole growth of flexible working uh, in terms of the emergence of people like right? The office group and we work with their uh, the use of data, understanding what's going on, as well as technology. Just I could just see these things coming to affect us, and we always look back on our buildings and think they're brilliant and they're the best that they can be, but they're for our occupiers because we're part if unless you can make the experience for the occupier uh, the best it can be, then they're not going to want to be there. So I was always thinking through the consequences of what we were doing. So as a consequence, I'm looking outside of the construction process. As I said, I've got a really capable team. They can manage that stuff. But I'm just thinking there's, there's still a better way. And i looking at the way that we consume energy in buildings, the sustainability story, listening to, you know, my colleague Janine, and being influenced by all these people around me, I could just see a bigger opportunity. So in 2016, uh, going back to it, I sort of went back to Toby, and i just said, look i think we're there's a challenge coming here if we, if we don't respond to it we're going to sleepwalk our way into uh to problems and he and he said okay he backed me and he said okay then prove it then and he asked me to, to lead a project called what we called internally was the disruption project which was to look at disruptors in the industry and imagine ourselves in 2035 and what advice would we give ourselves to look forward and I mean, it was looking back on it now it was a bit of a ridiculous time scale it was too far in the future, but there were three key things around flexibility around the use of data and the use of technology uh, and then the emerging theme of sustainability, uh, which is now accelerated beyond all recognition quite rightly, and that was why the role was created because there was these these great opportunities to change what we do and to carry on you know, with our same business plan, but look at all these disruptors that are coming into the market. And instead of them being a threat, how do we make them an opportunity? And that's, that's what we've done, and that's what I do.
1: Maybe it's for our, our audience, a bit of perspective on this. So I spoke to one of your current colleagues and I asked them about this. They said, James gets frustrated, but frustrated enough to be motivated to find the solution. Not stopping and being told, that that's the way it's always been. So it certainly sounds you've been sort of uniquely qualified for this. <laughs> Maybe this is the cynic in me. How's the market reaction been to that? We all love our gossip, don't we?
0: Yeah.
1: Have you faced any, uh, any cynics as to people who may have thought that this is not a positive step?
0: Oh, no, I have, yeah, definitely. And... um And people couldn't really understand it. Partly, I suppose, because they couldn't understand the role. And people have asked me, saying, you know. We don't
1: have, I think the crucial thing is you don't have a peer there, do you? No. There's no one else that you can replicate, compete with, overtake, measure against. It is a really risky role.
0: Yeah. It didn't feel risky at the time, and it doesn't feel risky now, because for me, it was quite logical. But. You know i did get some gossip and some feedback saying well you know what did you do wrong i thought i thought all your projects were going really well why did you get demoted and uh, i was going, what do you mean demoted i got promoted i'm not i wasn't it wasn't a demotion and they couldn't really understand it but i do miss the people from the construction industry and some great friends they're still friends now but it just i just felt it would i would become stifled i guess I couldn't change and I couldn't shift. And I, you know, I love working for GPE and I didn't want to leave the business and I don't want to leave the business. So it was just that it was that evolution and it gets me really excited and I'm really, really motivated by those things. And it's just the, the frustration at, okay, the, there's never frustration at GPE, it's frustration at the, the inefficiencies in the industry.
1: Tell me if I'm barking up at the wrong tree here. But you, you, you mentioned before about sort of you wear your heart on your sleeve. And in that in that role as head of projects, and when you've got – you talked about sort of other people sort of shouting louder, how did that
0: affect you? Oh, yeah, that that gets me down. That gets me down. Because I just can't – it was sort of like, well, what's the point? You know, it was just that point of that sort of – I mean, it's, it's moving away, but that macho BS that exists in the industry, it's just nonsense. And – I've always enjoyed and I've always been able to work with this sounds, this sounds incredibly patronizing. So I'm probably going to get all kinds of crap at this point, but just working with female colleagues, I I really, really enjoy it because I think I find them to be more considered and more thoughtful and more useful and more pragmatic. And therefore you can find a solution. And what I sort of really get tired of is the aggression and the, bravado from the rest of the industry and I think you know hopefully that's changing as I said the, the value on emotional intelligence and also the, the value of diversity too for those reasons um but it's it was I, I could just I guess I, I could see greater potential for fixing so many industry issues about for example right just energy consumption and carbon is rightly critically important but it's for me it's also it's only it's also useful only when you measure how people use buildings and there's such insufficient data to understand actually how an occupier uses a building and the future is going to be really uncertain sadly you know we're in the middle of a pandemic we're in the middle of a crisis The growth of machine learning—all these things are going to keep evolving over this next decade. And learning how people use buildings is the great opportunity for me. It's it's just fascinating because ultimately, if that's how you make how the occupiers happy, and if the occupiers are happy, they're going to want to stay in your buildings. And uh, it's why we we don't we don't make smart buildings for the sake of making smart buildings because. It was the latest thing to do we do it because we really want to understand how people use it and how can we make their daily lives better and if you shift the focus from design to the outcome then that's the opportunity that's the great opportunity over this next decade and i'm fortunate to work for an organization that values that too and that we look at those things and and try and incorporate them and integrate them and that's why you know, I think we've got such an exciting time ahead of us. So after
1: nearly three years in the role as Director of Workplace and Innovation, how much progress have you made? And what barriers have you might have
0: faced? Uh, no, I I've made lots of progress. And again, going back to that point about... I think it's, it's things bringing all the lessons together, which is really people have a fear of failure. So therefore, make the test really simple and the the consequence of it not really big. So creating the smart building at 160 Old Street was not, we didn't set out to make it. We, that was a result of three years of collaboration, listening to different people, testing out on a small building, working with a great supplier, smart spaces, putting that together, working with IT guy, understanding what the issues are, getting ideas from Head of Occupied Services about making services better and putting all those things together and listening. And what what I came the most valuable lesson is is that people in property generally I wouldn't say lack imagination, but but think yeah okay the next thing will come and and people in the prop tech world are forever moaning about people in real estate saying well they're so slow they're so boring they they don't react. Well, real estate is quite slow. It's a slow moving business in terms of, it takes seven years to build a building from concept to finish and the occupy moving in. But it took Instagram so Facebook to take Instagram from one million users to one billion users in that same period of time. So technology moves quick. So you've got to stay open-minded. You've got to understand how a building gets put together and then look for the opportunity. And that's how we could make those buildings smart because we were retrofitting that technology. And by doing that, then we build on that for the next thing and we learn for the next project so what we do at hickman next month when people see that that is a truly advanced smart building that takes into account all of the work we learn with bim it's building in the digital twin it's putting in sensors it understands how people move about the building it looks at wellness about energy consumption about sustainability and it but above all else it's a great and exciting place to be in because we thought about the design and, and that's another part of my role so it's the reason why it's workplace and innovation is because i'm looking at both trends at the same time and i chair the design review panel so that we're testing the teams and giving them permission to fail really along the way and, and encouraging them and being bolder in what we do because you if know, fortune's going to favor the bold in in that that world and other competitors may wait and see, and that's fine for them. But for us, it, it means that we're always staying ahead of what occupiers need. And, and as long as we can package that and sell that, then we're going to be working on some really exciting projects to come over the next decade uh, already. And it's, it's a, in a time of you know, quite miserable economic outlook, healthy outlook or whatever, it's, there's a lot to come. And, it, and I'm fired up and excited by it.
1: Well, I think that sort of the, the optimism think is, a, is a brilliant way for us to draw this to a close. So, James, thank you very much for, for giving up your time, mate. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I have no doubts that our audience will, will do too. So thank you.
0: No, thank you. I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed the, the conversation. It's nice to reflect once in a while. It's good. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by McDonald & Company, the leading real estate recruiter. To discuss any matters with Nick Carman, please contact him
1: via the email address in your show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released.